Hi, I'm Andy Reid. Welcome to Honestly from HBCS, a podcast that brings you real, honest talk about health-related issues that most people find difficulty talking about. We're here to encourage you to advocate for your own health and be your own champion. You know your body best and what your best life looks like. We give you the information you need to make informed choices. Coming up on this show. last two to three years, we've started to see a steady increase in women having early syphilis. And added to that, as you mentioned, congenital syphilis, which is when the mother transmits syphilis to the, to the fetus or at the time that she gives birth to the baby. Then we're starting to see a slow but steady increase in the number of congenital syphilis cases. One question I want to ask you, the COVID pandemic, do you think we are at the end of it? As a, an epidemiologist, I just I, this is just an opinion. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not asking for a, a Tony Fauci moment here. I'm just you know. <laughs> with us on the show today. I am delighted to be joined by Andrew Evans. Andrew Sherman Evans Jr. MPH is a director of Public Health and Disease Prevention at the Public Health and Disease Prevention Division of the Dutchess County Department of Behavioural and Community Health, and he has been there for 32 plus years. Andy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Now, I know that what, one of the things we're going to be uh, talking about is STIs, HIV, Hep C. I know you're the go-to guy on that in this area. And I was thinking maybe we could, you know, link it into COVID and how COVID has impacted this and uh, or not. That's the kind of one of the burning questions I'd like to ask you. But before I do that, I would, uh, you know, just for the listener, Andy, what is your role and what is the role of the Department of Behaviour and Community Health? My particular role, I am that I've been recently promoted to director, but I've been with the county health department for about 32 years. I've been, I started my career in uh, sexually transmitted disease epidemiology and investigation, did that for the longest time, promoted to supervisor and transitioned to zoonotic or arthropod-borne diseases such as Lyme disease, for example, and then broaden my scope to other things like bioterrorism, food and waterborne disease, uh, vaccine preventable disease, just became a, a generalist. So, and as I did that, I became supervisor of the programs and worked under staff. You know, now, like ultimately, as I get to the near the end of my career, I'm now the director of the division. So I do less of the hands-on work, but I have tons of experience with it. So what our role is regarding STIs or STDs, our role is we keep track of the number of cases in the county. Uh, we follow up on all those reported cases. By law, they are reported to the health department. So if anybody, your listeners, does or is happen to get a reportable STI, to know that it is reported to the health department and we do follow up with those cases. And what we do with those cases is we assure that the person that has the infection is treated and treated correctly. And also we would do a contact tracing interview to elicit partners or their sex partners to make sure that those people are notified, get an opportunity to get tested and treated before they have disease. And lastly, we do, we also, we're not currently have it because one of the things that COVID did do was our clinic services, our free clinic services, were interrupted because of COVID, but we are looking towards this year getting them back up and running again. So we offer a mitigation clinic where people can come in, get tested and treated. And another arm of it as well, which you are aware of, 
we will come out and do presentations and education to anyone who requests those. Now, that, that was one of my, the, the questions I wanted to ask you, Andy, is how has COVID-19 impacted your department's ability to do SDI testing? And is that still the case? Well, the impact with COVID-19, you know, we go all the way back to 2020 in January 2020 before we even had a vaccine. The mm -hmm. main um, intervention with COVID-19 at that time was contact tracing and education. They select the workers that were first selected to do that because they're highly specialized and highly trained in this and talking about sensitive subjects and getting people to open up about who they've exposed is they took the STD workers to do that first. And they were the ones that trained others on how to do COVID interviewing initially before it became more, you know, went out to, they developed programs and, were, and trainings. That's where it started. And that was sort of a national thing that were the DI, they call them DIS or disease intervention specialists nationally. In Dutchess County, they have the same role, but we call them public health advisors. But um, yeah, they are really well, it's a very extensive training to, you know, if you think about it, I'm going to, uh, I was trained in this and did it for many years. I'm going to reach out to someone who has syphilis, for example, and that's something very personal and has a huge impact on someone's life. And I'm going to uh, motivate them to tell me about themselves, personal things about themselves, and also potentially tell me about who they've had sex with at a certain amount of time under the guise of confidentiality that we do it but that I'm gonna notify those people, get them in, get them tested and treated. So, and we've been, we're very successful at that. I know it's hard to believe, but people are, with the right training and motivation, people will cooperate in the process. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so how COVID impacted us first is that they were pulled away from their duties with STIs. And I had a few people, we were doing minimal, the minimal that we could do, we had to, virtually cease all the contact tracing efforts to do and just make sure that people that had the SDIs were treated. But we were able to do that extra part and do any outreach or education or broad thing because as the world sort of closed down, COVID sort of stopped a lot of our activities because all of our resources were put into doing COVID. You know, one of the interesting caveats during the whole COVID, um, we're still in COVID and I don't want to say we're out of it, but as it appears to be winding down is that for 2020, we had a huge statewide increase in gonorrhea. Well, and we're not quite sure why that is, but there was an explosion of gonorrhea case and um, we weren't able to address them the way we wanted to. We made sure that people were treated, but um, the numbers were higher. And like I said, it wasn't just here in Dutchess County, it was all over the state. You know, I, I think after they have, we have time to really look at it after we're not just doing COVID all the time. I think we could look at some of the reasons why that occurred. Uh, this year for 2021, uh, where I mean, last year, 2021 into 2022, gonorrhea went back down to the levels it was before COVID. So we're not quite sure what caused that or not, but it was there was an explosion of the other STIs, but it was an explosion of gonorrhea. So, um, Well, two questions I want to ask you. Um, going back to syphilis, it seems to be that there has been an explosion of syphilis and, you know, relatively speaking, and this is before the, 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 the outbreak of COVID, you know, syphilis in women, congenital syphilis. Well, 20, 25 years ago, we wouldn't be saying that. Is there a, do you have a hypothesis for that? 
Okay. Um, and actually, there was syphilis 2020 five years ago. When I started my career, syphilis was, uh, there was an explosion of syphilis nationally, but even in, in Dutchess County as well. And we had numbers sort of like what we have today. The, the first out or cluster or characteristics of syphilis when I first started my career in the late 80s, early 90s, was uh, it was mainly heterosexual transmission. It was related to uh, substance use with crack cocaine. Prostitution was part of it. And there was a lot of congenital syphilis because there was a lot of heterosexual contact that caused the transmission. What happened was is that um, simultaneously HIV you know, really took hold around that time as well. And then we saw a rapid decline in syphilis. Like in 1999, we had zero reported cases of syphilis wow. in Dutchess County. Then the following year, 2000, I got my first report of a case of primary syphilis in a, a male with other men. We usually use that, we use that term, we don't use the term gay because not everybody identifies that way, but they still sure, have sure. sex with men. So it's an epidemiological term. So I, but, um, so this, this, he was sort of the first that like sort of ushered in. It started in New York City where they were seeing this trend. And then it, then there was a, from that time on, we saw a huge increase in the MSM population with early syphilis. And when we look at syphilis, numbers or whatever, we try to count early syphilis because that tells us what's going on at that time. A lot of people may not get syphilis treated and they could have late late stage syphilis, but it's not transmissible at that time. So early syphilis is transmissible. So we sort of like that's where what's going on. And it was mainly a man of sex with men. What's happened as that it's sort of found its way into that population, but um, as the MSM acronym says, they have sex with men, but some of them have sex with women as well. Yes, yes. And it's crossed over into the heterosexual population. In the last two to three years, we've started to see a steady increase in women having early syphilis. And added to that, as you mentioned, congenital syphilis, which is when the mother transmits syphilis to the, the fetus or at the time that she gives birth to the baby, then we're starting to see a slow but steady increase in the number of congenital syphilis cases. So, and so, yeah, so we are currently in the M, the men of sex with men um, outbreak is still going on at this time. The why it's why that that population or why it occurred in that population, you know, I, I had an interesting, I did an interesting talk by someone from the CDC who was in this, uh, the regional person of the CDC, uh, STIs. She had an interesting graph about syphilis and HIV treatments and saw how HIV had an impact in person's behavior as far as sex. But once HIV became treatable, we started to see another rise in the other STIs because people felt more comfortable to have condomless or unsafe sex. Now, would you say then, Andy, there's a correlation, you know, with PrEP and the rise in STIs? I want to make sure that I do say that I'm not in any way suggesting that PrEP causes an increase in STIs, because that's not what I'm trying to say. But is there a correlation in figures? All right. Well, it, um, I think STIs have been increasing without PrEP. So I don't know if PrEP is the only factor. I think that like I have seen just off the top of my head um, is like I have read some things where they are studying this. I don't know that they can 
make that exact correlation that PrEP causes. But um, PrEP, I will just get on, PrEP is an excellent thing. And I think it's something that we need to promote. I said, because uh, one of the things about the governor's plan to eliminate HIV in in New York state, PrEP is one of the arms of that. So yes, even if we were finding that um, with all the education in the world and condom distribution or whatever, that the messaging wasn't changing people's behavior. So, you know, in many ways, this is another option if somebody chooses not to have safe sex or, you know, a partner that is non-infected or monogamy, all like all the other options out there, if they choose not to do that, at least they can have, it can prep is a, what I would call a sex positive message. And that like, you know, where we're not telling you not to have sex with people, we're saying have sex, but if you're on prep, you can do it in a safer way, you know, meet people where they're at. And uh, so, now, in terms of if somebody presents as having symptoms, possible symptoms of an STI, and they subsequently realize that they, they are positive for STI, at this present time, where would you be advising people to go for treatment, uh, for testing, etc.? I would go seek out a provider or an urgent care. Uh, those are two options. Many, if you're in college, some of the cl- college health services have uh, screening as well, or they'll refer you to somewhere. Eventually, yes, you'll be able to come to our clinic, but if you're in another county, they may have the SDI clinical services up and those are free. And in New York State, uh, free STI services should be offered uh, because it allows persons that are under the age of 18 to go get STI screening and treatment without having to let their caretakers or uh, those persons responsible know that this was done because there could be ramifications. They may not be aware that a person's having sex and that teenager or young person not may not be ready to have that conversation or there could be ramifications. They could, you know, let's say they're having, it's a boy, it's a, a man who's having sex with men. You know, the parents may not know that. At least they have a safe way to get the service and get it taken care of. So, um, Again, mainly right now in Dutchess County, I would suggest those other venues. In the next couple of months, we are working towards having our clinic reopen. So. Well, that was, the, that was the next question I was going to ask. When do you have a, a date in mind, in your mind, what, you know, when that will be? Are you saying a couple of months? Yeah, probably in a couple of months. We just have to, where we're at right, right now is um, we, we got staff back to uh, have in the clinic. And as, like I said, COVID restrictions decline and our, on our effort into working on COVID, you know, a lot of the nurses and the public health advisors were working on COVID, whether it's the vaccine arm mm-hmm. or the contact tracing arm. As we pull back from that, then we'll be able to put our resources into the clinic. But um, again, we haven't had it in like about two years. So we just have to go back and review our policies, get our supplies in line, and get enough staffing, and it'll be open soon. The one thing I want to do is, 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 is give a shameless plug to HVCS and their services. We offer free STI, HIV, Hep C testing. Please come to us if you're listening to this. Absolutely. We, our doors are open. Now, Andy, one question I want to ask you. The COVID pandemic, do you think we are at the end of it? As a, an epidemiologist, I just I, this is just an opinion. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not asking for a, a Tony Fauci moment here. I'm just you know. <laughs> from where we're at now, it appears that way. The only thing we're 
because we are, a lot of people are vaccinated or have had the infection. So we are approaching herd immunity with it and not everywhere, but in many places. Yeah. So herd and that concept is what would keep it under control. The only game changer would be because a lot of, uh, there are many places that do not have herd immunity or a significantly vaccinated population, the development of variants could occur and that could change things. Uh, there are three levels of variants, um, and the variant we've never we have yet. I'll knock on wood here. We have yet to have a variant of high concern, one that like the vaccine doesn't work for. It'll still infect people uh, who already had the disease, and it causes a high severe outcome of hospitalization and death. We haven't had one like that. The the Omicron and the Delta and the original Wuhan uh, virus that were the three biggies that sort of came through, it's because our population was naive to this zoonotic and started in animals first, crossed over to us, is that the population sort of, for lack of a better word, we almost learned to have it in our community, but it doesn't have the impact that have when we're naive to it or it never had it before. That's why it rushes through like wildfire. And the other thing as we, as the virus mutates, we're seeing that the mutations are more going to being more transmissible but maybe not so being virulent. And, but again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know for sure, but the numbers are telling us that we're getting to a point where it's winding down. Now, do you think, Andy, that, you know, obviously over the last couple of years, we've all had to get creative in terms of, I mean, certainly here in Hudson Valley Community Services, we've had to approach HIV and STI testing in a different way, you know, like do intakes over the phone, meet people masked up, you know, wearing jackets and, you know, covers, et cetera, shields, and people are in and out as quick as we can. Do you think that the COVID-19 virus has prepared us as organizations, as society? If something like this happens again, we're better prepared. Okay. Um, that's a very fair and good question. I think one of the things that we learned from COVID-19 is that like in Dutchess County or in other areas that over the last 20 years, they've actually decimated public health, uh, reduced our numbers of people of us that can do these kinds of things. So like for COVID, they had to like suddenly like build it in a, in a very quickly, you know, and like I'll give a plug for, you know, in Dutchess County, we have a very robust medical reserve corps. We couldn't have done a lot of our activities without that medical reserve corps, which were like, over a thousand or so that volunteered to work at vaccine pods, help with contact tracing, et cetera, with the training. So I think lessons learned, and I hope that when, when it winds down, that we at least keep some of that infrastructure that they supported with all the money and people that we got, you know, and I'll wait and see. I'm not going to predict either way on that. So yeah, I would say we did learn some things, but I've been through, I gave, I gave a talk recently at Bard College to public health students. And, you know, when I wrote what I've been through, I've been through various pandemics, uh, first starting with HIV. I've been with the H1N1, with Zika virus, with Ebola, with uh, what else, uh, Lyme disease, you know, a whole bunch of things that have really hit us. And like, you know, I, you know, you ask the question, have we learned or not? It, we learned some things, but I don't know if it always carries over. So, uh, you know, but I think that uh, one of the good things we learned from those other things is that, especially with the uh, bioterrorism, is that they put a lot of money to emergency preparedness. 
And that's what this kind of thing sort of sets us up for. So we're always doing drills and stuff like that. So I think if with the having had that in place, I think we that's what made any of the efforts we had successful because we couldn't have done what we've done without that arm of public health. And I will say one thing too, that one of the impacts, I, and this may be add on to your question, that I think about with COVID is that because of the remoteness and because we weren't having access to things, one concern I have is not even just uh, communicable infectious diseases, but some of the chronic diseases like cancers and stuff, that people weren't able to go to the doctor and get their regular preventative checkups. So I, I don't know, you know when COVID decides to be sort of like just normalized in society, you know, those won't be some of the things we're going to see in the future that were impacts of COVID, whether it's meant increases in mental health issues and drug use and like I said, cancers, et cetera, that were not diagnosed because people were not able to go get regular checkups with their doctor. I mean, so I can speak to that, Andy. I don't mind speaking about this on this uh, podcast because I'm 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 vocal about it. I have been suffering from prostate cancer, uh, and that did happen in the meat and bones of the COVID virus, uh, the, you know, the, the, the pandemic. And fortunately, because I needed an operation, it was deemed to be essential, and I managed to get that operation. But I absolutely hear what you're saying, and I hope it's not as bad as what you worry that it could be, uh, because you're right, a lot, a lot of things were probably cancelled and went by the wayside. And that's a, that's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Yes. Now, Andy, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. The one thing I like to ask people before I go is, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wished I had? No, actually, I thought you pretty much covered the topic. I would just say for anybody to go back to the original topic of STIs, it's like, you know, you are in control of what happens and you can take steps on your own to prevent STIs. CDC, HBCS has plenty of resources and education. Uh, the two main things with STIs is like get screened and get tested and treated and notify your partners. Three things, sorry. You know, that would be my message to take home on this. I think that's a great place to leave it, Andy. Thank you very much for coming on today and taking time out of your day. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners do also. That's all we have time for. Before I go, I would like to thank Andy Evans for taking the time to come on the show and share some valuable information for our listeners and viewers. Tune in next time to Honestly from HVCS in order to meet more people doing what they can to improve your quality of life and encourage a healthy Hudson Valley. If you like this show, please give us a five-star review wherever you get your favourite podcast. Learn more about our free services at www.hudsonvalley.org or find us on social media. HVCS is a division of Cornerstone Family Healthcare. Goodbye.